Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today's a special uh, day, and we're going to do things a little bit differently. I've got Ambassador Shabazz, who's going to join me for the um, the main portion of the uh, of the program today, because we are so honored and uh, and just really thrilled to have in our midst Danny Glover, who is a, a dear friend of both of ours. Of course, everyone knows him as an award-winning actor, film director, political activist, all-around brilliant man. Um, Danny has just been involved in so many things over the years. I'll just list a couple of them, and we're going to dive into a few of them as we speak. Um, but going back to uh, the late 80s, in fact, 89, Danny was one of the founding members of Artists for Free South Africa, which became artists for New South Africa once Nelson Mandela was freed, but instrumental in that fantastic cause and uh, definitely helped to uh, bring some attention to something that needed the attention. And, and Danny was a big part of that. Danny was also one of the original superstars in Robert Earl's group of Planet Hollywood celebrities that launched back in the early 90s. So we're going to talk about that. I remember Danny inviting me to a, a Rodeo Drive Planet Hollywood event in Beverly Hills where they shut the whole state. You shut Rodeo Drive down. You got some money. So we'll, we're going to talk about that. And uh, more recently, uh, Danny joined the uh, workers in Bessemer, Alabama, in the support of a union effort that ultimately did not work, but at the request of the, the workers at Amazon, Danny joined them and brought some uh, much needed attention to some issues that uh, they're trying to raise there. So we've got lots to talk about. I'll stop with, because I could go on and on with Danny's accolades and acknowledgements, but we'd rather hear him live and in living vocal color. So Danny, what's happening, man? Hey, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm doing great. It's, it's great, great, great to talk to you and be, be on this podcast. Someone told me, I hear the voice. I know the voice. <laughs> yeah, you can't man. hide from that, you know. Yeah. And I and I'm occasionally closing my eyes just so I can I can visualize. But uh, we all know what you look like, man. And and uh, yeah. so we're, we're we're thrilled. The ambassador and I are thrilled to to have you here. Um, so before we get started, Ambassador, you just want to say hello real quick. Yes, to, uh, to I'm just so excited. Just the notion that this was forthcoming and speaking to him, I guess, last month and connecting the conversation to make sure this date was secured. So welcome aboard, Mr. Glover. I, I, I am so honored to be aboard here, both with you and Brad uh, and uh that we go back a ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Danny. So we we kick things off with what I call short order questions. That's a little play on restaurant terminology, fast food. So these are just easy questions. They shouldn't uh, cause you to to strain your brain too much because I know you're just warming up. So we want to give you a chance to get rolling. So, what is your morning regimen? 
whether you're at home or on the road. So what what's what's your what do you do, Danny, to, to get rolling in the morning? Well, uh, to get rolling in the morning, normally it is tries try to get on some sort of machine, whether it's a stationary bike or uh, a, an elliptical machine, something in the morning to get me going. Um, and, and sometimes, and 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 so sometimes in this this moment in my life, I get a little lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm getting a little lazy, but I can remember. And those moments where where I'm when once I get moving and, and getting and, and feeling sweat, wherever it is, I'm, I'm on a roll there. And I think I think my day starts. You know, yeah. Uh, it relaxes me. Uh, it, in some sense, uh, gives me a, a, a sense that a, a sense of confidence. Uh, and just to do that sometimes, just getting up in the morning, just doing some exercise, gives me a sense of confidence in myself and, and gets me to begin to move through the day. Um, I, I try not to get on the phone before that, but sometimes I can't, <laughs> I can't help that because so once I get on the phone, then my day begins right there with a, a conversation or thinking about something, but I need, I need and, and require some time uh, before I get, uh, as I wake up, to, to imagine myself in motion. Yeah. So that's the question. I have a yeah. long answer to imagine no, myself it's a, in it, motion. It's a good one. And I, I'm going to tell all those people out there to not call Danny too early in the morning. Let him get it. Let him get on his treadmill and on his stationary bike, you know, and it'll break <laughs> a little sweat before you before you jump on him for all the answers. So, Danny, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What are you listening to? I'm, I'm listening to uh, a lot of Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> really? Okay. Jimmy. I, I love Jimmy Hendrix. You know, I got one opportunity to see him, but I, I sometimes, you know, I, I, I just want him. Voodoo Child was on my mind, mm. and I pulled up. Or it, it could be uh, 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 this morning also was the Isley Brothers, Atlantis. I love Atlantis with the mm -hmm. Isley Brothers. It's the young Isley Brothers wrote that. But you all know that Jimi Hendrix once was part of the Isley Brothers group early on in his career, you know, and, and, and Little Richard as well. So yeah. I, 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 that was some, something. Something old is always uh, is always brings me, uh, energizes me in the moment. And and uh, in that moment, if I, I want to go somewhere else, you know, it, it's always going to be somewhere near John Coltrane and, and and Miles Davis as well. Yeah, man, nothing wrong with any of those those names on that list. And yeah, Ernie Isley, no doubt was influenced uh, by the time that uh, Jimmy spent with them, man, and his guitar playing sure shows it, but uh, love, oh, love all of those names. Absolutely. Where do you go for your news or, or what do you read or watch where you feel you get the most balanced reporting? I know you're a man of the world and you're paying attention to a lot of things and news can be biased, but what do you, what do you look to for your information? Oh, I, I, there, there are various ways in which I, 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 I like listening to the news and, and, 
I listen to often free speech radio a great deal. I'm going to find out something. I'm going to learn something. Something's going to, and, and that, and that's in, in Los Angeles, KPFK, uh, or KPFA in San, in San Francisco here. And, uh, I, I, I want something. I want to hear something. I want to hear people talking in conversation about what has happened. And often, and those, those sources, those news, news chat, uh, news outlets, provide me a, a, a sense of what is happening in the world. And I, I go to also something called Portside, which uh, I, I, I look at sometime during the day. And there, there, there's so many different things that are happening in the world. I, I want to kind of d- differentiate between, and let me use the word, in, in, not in, in, a, in a derogatory way, the chatter and what is really happening. So I think sometimes you have to distinguish between the chatter and what is really going on in the world. What are the things that that that, uh, that I think I need to be thinking about as I move through my day? Not simply a an incident, but also a movement of current currency uh, about trying to figure out uh, the world beyond what we're often told to respond to, if that makes any sense. Makes a lot of sense, especially given this past year when, you know, you, you were afraid to turn away from the news. So your, your, your brain gets filled with all of that stuff that's coming at you. And I think, if anything, we all learned how essential it, it, it is to be able to sift through the noise to the, to the stuff that uh, you really need to listen to and, and pay attention to. So thank yes. you for that, Danny person past or present that inspired your activism uh oh, oh, well certainly uh my, my parents were first um uh, my, my parents my parents were this you can imagine these young this young couple marrying just at the end of world war ii and coming together and and finding work and in fi- and, and and coming of age, young couple coming of age, with the emergence of the civil rights movement and their involvement as in in as activists within the postal union, they were post office workers and everything else. Their 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 involvement and the way in which my mother from the deep south and I remember this Brad so much. And, and you too, Doctor Sirwaz. I remember so much being watching them, the world through their eyes by what they watched. Mm-hmm. I remember the Montgomery bus boycott. Now I'm nine years old then. I'm saying, who are these people? Because my mother and father are paying attention to what they're doing in that moment, in that simple act of defiance. They're paying attention to that. And so that was my first step. In, in, the, in that world, you know, as I heard them talk within their their, their union, within the, uh, the conversations, because at, at that particular point in my life, the a large number of the workforce with the U.S. Postal Service was African-American. So I saw these people in and out. We were living in the projects initially. I saw these people coming up to the projects in our home, sitting down, having meetings, having conversations. That was, you know, 
explicitly the first time, um, first a movement of my politicalization. And then it certainly, it, it came throughout being a student activist. It came throughout meeting artists who, who work on behalf of, uh, and so many of them, uh, behind, behind justice. I mean, I, I consider you a part of that family too, Ambassador Shabazz. You too, Brad, as, as a part of that audience, a part of people who are constantly have their, their minds and their, their ideas and their thoughts on what is happening beyond the news as well. Well, thank you for that, Danny. You know, as you were as you were speaking, and I've been thinking about this a bit lately, too. Um, you know, I feel like my generation kind of as the beneficiaries of the civil rights movement. And as you're talking about your folks and what resonated with you at such a young age, I think my generation kind of we sat back a little bit in that we benefited from so much of that work. We got the jobs. We got to go to school. We got to go to camp in some cases. I mean, we, you know, we did not feel the, the same pressure, I think, um, early on to, to carry the torch, if you will. But I think we've, we've all woken up a lot in the last few years. And, uh, I don't want to speak for the ambassador, but I know that I have felt like uh need to need to pick up the pace a little bit on on running my leg of the relay. Ambassador, did you have any of those those thoughts? Yes, I think that what you said is certain. We are beneficiaries of the beneficiary. And I think that it silenced for about 25, 30 years between our children and now. And so the things that Mr. Glover has relayed it, it from the eyes of a child watching his parents is really the bequeathing we have to do all the time, generation to generation, our value, our, our what matters, and how we pass it on to the next. It is our responsibility, whether it's our child or not, to do that. And I know that he's the kind of person, you, Mr. Glover, are the kind of person that makes sure that whatever you learn, you share. And that's always been one of the wonderful engagements I've gotten to experience in our um, decades of friendship as well. You know, yesterday I was on a a, a call, um, a, a Zoom call, with with something about a over 150 students who were uh, at, at my alma mater, at San Francisco State, and they wanted to know about the strike of 1968, the student strike, the longest student strike in the history of any major college in this country. I was a part of that as, as a member of the Black Student Union and a member of the Central Committee of the Black Student Union. It was an enormous moment in, in my, my life and it, it set the tone for a great deal of what, who I am now and the things that, that uh, concerned me. And I was just, it was amazing, uh, as I, I met with, uh, and spoke along with on the panel with other members, white and black. And, and, and Hispanic and Asian who were part of this, this, this extraordinary collaboration uh, and of, of students along with a faculty, along with community who demanded a school of ethnic studies. So it is the only school of ethnic studies in the country at San Francisco State University. So I was listening to that and, 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 and certainly participating in that. And, and drawing out some of the parallels of what we see today and the importance of understanding that movements come along 
they begin to translate themselves with each generation. As Paul Robeson says, each generation makes its own history and is judged by that history it makes. So on that particular point, these students have to realize, and we as citizens have to realize, that, they, that we're making our own history. Every single thing that we do, are the ideas that we adopt, adopt the response to we we uh, to to the uh, the actions of not only those people in the past, but response to what is happening in the moments in the service of justice, in the service of justice, and, and that becomes that, and and certainly, uh, um, uh, you know, um, this Ambassador Shabazz's father was there. A hit moment within his generation and others have been that. And that's the legacy that we stand on. Those are the backs that we stand on as well. Yeah, Tandy, you know, it just it's it's so good, man, just to hear you. Um, you know, and it, and it makes me grateful that that, uh, um, of course, that you agreed to come on and speak with us. But for the medium of, of a podcast that allows us, I mean, we've had lots of conversations. You and I, we've spent time together. I know you've had conversations with Ambassador Shabazz. But to, for others to hear your voice in this kind of an intimate uh, setting, I think is just a very unique way for your message and and your insights to uh, to be delivered. So so thank you again, man, for taking the time. So we're going to dive in here. We've got a few things we want to try to get to. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Um, you know, my relationship with you, Danny, goes back over 20 years um, I remember meeting you in the early 90s and you, we actually flew together. Um, you had an idea uh, or were inspired to uh, bring African cuisine into the forefront um, in terms of uh, a dining option here in the U.S. And uh, you, we flew down to meet with Robert Earl, the creator of Planet Hollywood, the gentleman who ultimately uh, expanded um, uh, Hard Rock Cafe as well. Real genius of a guy, but Danny, you were you were way ahead of you know because West West African cuisine is like the pick these days of the of, of food to really kind of find its way onto a lot of menus. But you know we're going back into the '90s where you thought that that was something that that should happen. So I guess I I, I want to ask you what what first got you interested? When when did you first experience African cuisine and where? Well, you you know I I have to. Um credit a great deal, so many things, you know, uh, being in San Francisco State, the uh, inclusion of students from around Africa, particularly West Africa, whether Nigeria or Ghana or, 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 or Senegal or Mali, all those particularly tended was the real, real uh, you know, the, the real beauty of, of food as, as well. And I, there's several people. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, uh, mention my wife at the time, um, Ashaki Bomani, as a part of that that uh, uh, that uh, introduction or acculturation of that through art. Because you're not only talking about scene, you're talking about art as well, and the influence of art within that, uh, the, the influence of of being. Uh, connected to uh, uh, to movements, you know those movements, and understand those movements and the impact of those movements not only within the continent, but with all of those impact of the descendants of African descendants who we are, who who are now dispersed over the Western Hemisphere and in the world, 
and the impact, all of that had some sort of reflection on that and that. And then also putting on for the first time an African boo-boo. <laughs> in that kind of framework as well. All those things happen at a time when I think we were talking in general about our relationship with Africa. As African, uh, as formerly enslaved Africans, our relationship to Africa, a lot of that was happening in my generation and, and it was a, a point, point of reference in my generation as well. And so I, I think on that, and then suddenly you, you can th think about peanut, you know, we call it peanut butter, but peanuts, but groundnut stew. Uh, you can think about, uh, uh, Yasa, uh, Chebijin out of Mali and, uh, out of Mali and Senegal and, and the other kind of ways in which, uh, you know, the influence and, and the, the delicacy and the, uh, the taste the sensorial sense of, of, of African food as well, from smell to the way in which fish is transformed in, in the different ways or the way chicken is, uh, is transformed in a different way than, than we normally know it. And, and it, it was, it was just that there's, there's a, a, a saying, uh, um, it's a saying about wanting to know who people are. You know, and you have to want to, in that song, you have to want to know who they are by how they see themselves, by how they see themselves through their culture, through their art, through their food, through language, through expressions and all of that. I think that was, that moment was an extraordinary moment in, in my own maturation. And, and, and I'm sure thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of others as well of African descent. Well, you know, Danny, this year with all of the emphasis on restaurants and, and a lot more conversation around black owned restaurants and ultimately black cuisine, African-American cuisine, its origin, you know, the the diaspora has become a, a part of the uh, the narrative. But you will be pleased to know, and this is an interesting note, that the, uh, the one of the hottest restaurants right now in Paris is uh, the chef there is a, is a gentleman, his name is Maurice Sacco. His parents uh, are from Senegal, and he's a six, seven, very telegenic uh, African brother who is just rocking France's world. So next time you're in Paris, um, you know, you're going to have to go by and check him, check him <laughs> out, man, for sure. I can't wait um, to get to Paris. <laughs> yeah, man. So, you know, the last the last movie, Danny, that I saw you in, um, I actually watched a couple of times because it just moved me, man. It was such a warm, tender movie. And that's the, the last black man in San Francisco. And you and I talked uh, not too long ago and, and uh, touched on this briefly, you, myself and Ambassador Shabazz. But I'm. I'm curious, you know, it was such a tender film um, and your role was was just the, the centerpiece of it for me. But, you know, as you look, you're familiar with that 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 part of the country, that part of California, um, the Fillmore District. When you when you think about the idea, the concept of gentrification and what happens in the communities as they start to disperse. But just the word itself, I mean, I, I guess there's some inevitability to it, right? It's money, it's, it's properties of value and what have you, things are going to change. But what do you think about the word gentrification and what, what, how, did, how did that film resonate with you? It was um, uh, these two young men who 
gave the script to me and, and said, and they called, they called me now Mr. G. <laughs> Mr. G, you got to be in our film. You know, I read, I read the script. And I, I'm thinking about those places that you, I, I lived in those places. Brad, I lived in those communities. There's a scene in it where the young man is on the balcony smoking a cigarette. That's 500 steps at the most from this church I grew up in. And so I always wondered what that house was on the corner. And it was a mansion. It was a mansion on the corner, that house was. And all the other, all the, the rest of the community adjacent to it was responsive to that people who owned that mansion. Now my church, my church, what I grew up in, I thought from my convenience, my understanding, that my congregation built that church. No, they didn't. They just occupied that church and took uh, took that church and transformed that church in, 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 in that had been built somewhere at, somewhere after at the end of the 19th century. And, and, and it blew me away when I saw that. Because I never saw the relationship to, to my relationship to that mansion in that church in that context before. Before, mm-hmm. if you understand, when I've kind of mm-hmm. drawn this picture and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I just think that there's so much. I grew up in the Western edition. I was part. My family were part of my the migration, the migration of African descendants. The the, the Fillmore. We, we think we talk about the Fillmore as a traditional. Black community in San Francisco and the migration patterns that came specifically during and after World War II. That gave, that, that, that pushed African Americans west, whether it was fur, further, even more so to Los Angeles and Southern California or Northern California, you know, and, and they pushed them. My mother, who had grown up in the South, in the deep South, my, my grandparents, my grandparents' life, the almost 100 years that they lived, was between two, two small towns, Louisville, Georgia, and Renz. They're 14 miles from each other. Imagine that. And the circumference of their life took place for almost 100 years in that area because before that, their, their, their parents, after the end of slavery, their descendant, their, their, their connection after the end of slavery were part of that. And so my mom was the first one to move beyond that. Not, not simply the first one, but to move out west. We were the only, I was, I didn't have no relatives out west when I came up when I was born. Not one. Mm. But at the same, but if you go to New York, that East Coast, that corridor, which they traveled up to New York, or they say where they were, or moved around in, in that area in the South. So when I think about the, the movement, uh, when I think about a gentrification, or when I think about the, uh, the unique sense of, of how we, we make, make what we do, how we transport our ideas, our culture, our stories in that process. When I say gentrification, I see the loss of that. 
lost to those stories. I still go to those areas. I still walk down those streets. You know, they're not the same street. I still drive by there and remember a moment in my own life or remember a moment that, that I may have read about or remember people because I live generally in the same neighborhood that, that since I was 11 years old. Mm. I live 12 blocks from where I grew up there. My mom, my parents bought the house in, in, when I was 11 years old. So all these things about gentrification, there's something, something is lost in this process, you know, and, and, and the sense of community. Now that happens to poor communities that are always in transition. That doesn't happen in wealthy communities. The wealthy communities are wealthy. They just, what they advance is the advancement of new wealth coming into those communities. They don't go through the process of gentrification. They don't, they're not d defined in that saying as movable or as removable as, as we are. We have people said one of the, the fortunate things that has happened with the mission, well, the, the identity of the mission, which is his Latinx, Latinx, the identity comes from Mission Dolores. It's the first settlement outside of the First Nation people, the first settlement of foreigners in this country. So the, the identity of the mission, uh, uh, mission has, has some level of, of, of gentrification, but it doesn't have the same level that has happened with formerly enslaved Africans. Because what do you speak when you think about the mission? What was the first language, European language spoken in California? Not English, Spanish. When you think about the mission and you think about, uh, about that trans, trans, translation that's happened that, that we're always going through. And when, whenever we think about, uh, Latinx people, they're always going through that. They're always talking about where they're sister. Well, they're the first ones who came here. They were here before the English. They're, they're, they're places that African, that movement of formerly enslaved African is a different phenomenon. But when they get there, and make the most remarkable culture, the most remarkable food, the most remarkable sense of place and space. That's incredible. You know, my dad came of age. I had come from Kansas City. He, he loved San Francisco because he came of age in the Fillmore, the black community. He came of age when there was a prominent African-American presence in San Francisco, a prominent African-American, an energized African, politicized African presence that he, he and my mother were part of. Well, that, that we saw happen throughout the North, right? We saw Harlem, we saw Detroit, yes. um, San Francisco, certainly LA, and, and the, the, the possibility of seeing those cultural hubs diminish or dilute is is a is a tough one. So that's that's something that uh, you know we often talk about here. But you know, Danny, you 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 bring up slavery. I know you're the great grandson of a former slave, Mary Brown, who was freed in 1863. In 2019, you Ta-Nehisi Coates testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee about reparations and, and proposed the committee uh, to review. And I tell you, man, you know, watching you two, Ta-Nehisi that day in five minutes summed up about 400 years as poignantly as any any person he's could possibly. He's great. he's great. Wasn't he phenomenal, man? No, he's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And Danny, you said something that, um, you know, that just really I had to write it down and I wanted to bring it up today and just maybe get you to comment. But you said the reckoning of a crime against humanity that is foundational to the development of democracy, a national reparations policy is a moral, democratic and economic imperative. Do you want to just uh, share a little bit of your thinking about uh, what we're what we're talking about here and, and share your thoughts with us on this? We, we, we hear about reparations and we use the word and and and, and certainly we've we understood there's been reparations uh, and historical reparations for, for harm done to various various people. You know, whether it's Jewish people, whether it's it's Japanese people, citizens in here who have, who who had their land taken away from them and in turn in turn during World War Two. And there are other ways in which there have been forms of reparation in the sense, you know. I, I think the, the 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 sense of reparations within the within certain frameworks has to be understand in turn from the vantage point of the context of, of of what wrong was done, what wrong was done, the 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 most the the first engine of the industrial revolution was what cotton. The first engine engine of the industrial revolution of that, and it made a poor country which came into existence. Its first its its first. Congress came in 1789. It made its first that that country wealthy because of cotton. At the same time that this country came into existence, a couple of things happened. One of the things that happened was that British industrialists had developed a machine that took cotton, which had been grown for centuries, in Kashmir, India, other, all over the place, cotton had been grown. The United States was it wasn't idyllic to just the United States. It was grown all over the world. It took cotton, transferred it into thread and fat and, and material that faster ever by human hands. Cotton used to be a luxury item. Industrialization, industrial re- revolution made it a what? A cheap item, a, a transportable item, uh, an item in which it, it, it overtook wood, wool itself. Now, wool was able, came, came to be able to prosper, of course, because of the enclosure laws in, in, in Europe and everything else, where they actually, where people were on farmers and they were, and they were planting, and they, they were planting food and everything else, they were moved to the city. Because it became more profitable to have sheep and wool and produce that. That became a commodity. So cotton becomes a commodity and it comes a commodity here where it's grown abundantly. And who are, who are the instruments in the production of that? Formerly enslaved and, and not formerly, then enslaved African that created that wealth. Robeson, so many other people talk about the wealth, enormous wealth. You know, the majority, at, at, at before the Civil War, the majority of millionaires were where? In the Deep South. Cotton. I think, uh, I, and, and from that vantage point, it, it gave, um, uh, gave birth to the rest of the Industrial Revolution. Now, people want to say, well, that's in the past and everything else, but the, the harm done to African descendants the harm to the formerly enslaved Africans is, 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 
And they're remarkable, enormous, remarkable from slavery to freedom is, is the most inspiring, one of the most inspiring stories in human history. They're remarkable there. And yet they still, and, and, and as, 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 as our sisters say, and still we rise. <laughs> <laughs> With all of that, you know, uh, and, and so I, I, there is that. If we talk about what do we talk about reparation? We talk about reparation is a Marshall Plan for the black community. I mean, we, 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 people are going to talk about a Marshall Plan for the whole economy now because of uh, uh, COVID nineteen, but it could be a, a Marshall Plan for the black community. Um, what you come How do we reinforce it? How do we how do we bring some of the ideas of my dear friend? around math, math literacy, Bob Moses in the play, in terms of education and providing another level of opportunity for specifically, not specifically African-Americans, but all students and all, all children as well. How do we use those ideas and everything else? How do we pay attention to, how do we build affordable housing? How do we deal with that? When, when, doing, doing those moments when at post-civil rights, I'm saying post only, there's a delineation between the the redevelopment and everything else. Those, those organizations like the Western Edition Community Organization, San Francisco, they fought valiantly to get some kind of concession from HUD and from the redevelopment agent. And some of them they got. And some of them they got affordable, some affordable houses. Some houses designated for people to live in and be able to pass those houses on to their families. I, a lot of that, I was around in 1966 at Waco meetings, Western Digital Community Organization meetings in 67, everything else, and watched them, watch people, ordinary citizens fight and make demands and everything else and get some concessions. Even though the train, the train was out of, out of the, out, you know, the train was going down the track. They were able to, to, to derail this train to some extent and to some extent get some concessions as their community is being devastated now and changed and everything else. There were concessions, the concessions, uh, made, made to Japanese, that whole Japanese center that, 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 that's uh, in San Francisco. That people come to year in and year out uh, to see and visit and, and as a tourist place and everything else right in that. That all used to be housing projects in San Francisco. I remember that because I was in, in the seventh grade when they began. I went to little, little house parties in those housing projects. Those were concessions that were made. And all, all these different things that we tend to forget because we all... Uh, we all said, and most people in power sits and says, okay, the story must go on. The empire must go on. <laughs> the empire must go And this is what's called to that attention. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And we, we can find various other ways and talk about this, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think what it does, it weighs a little for, for those formerly enslaved Africans, but all the, the level for all citizens in this country. Well, certainly nothing can ever repair the emotional damage that oh. uh, that has been done. And when you read the estimates of the financial um, disparities in the wealth gap, you know, it's it's estimated to be about uh, it's, it's north of 11 trillion dollars. It's a lot of money. Um, and of course, there are complications in terms of, you know, who pays, how it gets dispersed, who gets money. But 
This it's an important conversation, Danny, and and uh, you know we just cheer you on, man, to, to you know keep keep applying your voice to it, um, you know, and and as you did with South Africa, and we watched the Truth and Recon- Reconciliation Commissions uh, take shape there with some success. Um, you know, these, these issues for us are, are imperative if, we're, if we are ever going to close that, uh, that wealth gap. So we are, um, you know, unfortunately, our, our time goes so quickly, Danny. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end here, but I wanted to turn the last portion of the, the question over to, uh, Ambassador Shabazz. And I know she's percolating with some thoughts and listening to, um, you inspire us as you always do. But, uh, Ambassador, you, I'll let you take the, um, the last question, last comment here with, with Danny. Well, I've been listening and I moved and we've not, because of the distance, we've not been able to sit down and really, um, exchange like we used to, um, along the decades. But this is really the side of you I know. And I'm always excited when others get a chance to, have an uh, an earful, uh, heartful of what you um, live, how you live, what you glean. And while we know that you're a prolific artisan, for people to realize what the resonance of your dedication to the diaspora, all of us, all of the diaspora, so there's the African diaspora, but you've been engaged in so many as this podcast um, time has relayed, the cultures and the, and the migrations and the contributions of so many of our global human citizens. And it's just bountifully beautiful and rich, and it can't be lost. And, you know, years ago, I used to refer to you as a professor. And I think that there's some kind of sit-down time. I know you're on the road. You move like I move. I would really love to find ways that there are volumes of your knowledge that's imparted upon young people. And when we talked in this conversation about the generations, you as a nine-year-old, our generation that's just on the tail end of yours, I mean, it splits a generation. And now, and what's going on? And when I think about the Gen Zers, they need to hear you. They need to know you, not your catalog on IMDb, but this catalog of life, things that you shared in part, And I'm just wondering, you know, if you were to give or close for the listeners with words of encouragement that inspires or motivates, um, circulates who they are and what makes a difference to pursue their dignity with the things they want to manifest in this life. These young people are not ready to hear or rest and we don't want them hurt or wounded as we got to witness. So what would that nugget be? What would that word to the wise be for that 16 to 30 year old so that we're not losing them to the indifference um, that they've been experiencing in the last few years? So what's what's the good word? What's the encouraging word? The encouraging word is is that they they are embodied the embodiment embodiment. Young people are, are citizens, but young people because I'm putting, because they, they're the next generation. They're the embodiment of possibilities. And, and those possibilities always have to be ingratiated in this the spirit of struggle, of truth, and of justice. And, 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 and finding that and fighting for that, you know, 
Not, not, not accountability. There's a difference between accountability and justice. You know, we saw accountability happen um, with the police officer who was convicted uh, for the murder of, of George Floyd. We saw accountability, but not justice. Justice is a, it's justice is, is a process. Does accountability and saying it's translate itself, transform itself into justice? We don't know. But with that, that justice is the elusive, the most, wherever it is, whether it's in housing, whether it's in education, whether it's, it's, it's in, in, in what is happening right now, sitting right here, as we see our brothers and members of my family who are incarcerated, you know, and part of the, the prison, prison industrial complex. That is not about, that is about justice and finding that, that art between justice and the connection between justice within their lives, within their community, and struggling from it all, all knowing that all, all battles waged are valiant and important, and to continue to struggle, Aluta Continua, the struggle yeah. continues. That's right. Yes. Well, Danny, thank you, man. That that was that's powerful, and uh, I, I hope we get a chance to talk to you again. I know you, you know, you 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 work so hard. You're tireless, man, and and there's a lot of there are always a lot of demands on you. So we're just really grateful that you joined us today, man. We love you, brother, and and keep inspiring us and keep doing what you do. And, and, and you know what? There's always there's always an opportunity to talk to you, Ambassador Shabazz, and you also, Brad. Always, always, I'm here. We look forward you, to brother. you returning. We need it. Thank All you. Right. All right, Danny, take care. Right now, thank you. Ambassador Shabazz, Danny Glover is just, uh, I could listen and talk to Danny, you know, as much, with, as, as much as he, as much time as he has available. That's how much time I would like to give him any time well, that he is available. I I agree, you know, because over the years, over the decades, he's never short on insight or, I mean, unsolicited or otherwise, um, but so informed, so well-read, so well-traveled that he does have opinions and he does have viewpoints. And it comes from a, just a different place of having really walked the walk. And so being able to share him with the corner table audience um, giving a different, getting a different glimpse of who Danny Glover actually is, is really rich. Absolutely. Yes. And thank you for, um, because you, you really coordinated that one. And, uh, Danny certainly would have been on my list. But, uh, when you called that morning and, and told me that you had just gotten off the phone with him and, and he couldn't wait to, uh, yes. to come on corner table talk. That just, uh, that was a very exciting. <laughs> yeah. And you do a good imitation to Danny. I, I was going to call you out on that with him on the phone, but then I didn't want to fix you on the phone. Yeah. So. <laughs> and but he enjoyed so experiences. Much. I remembered the days when he was a partner to the, or the in, part investors to the restaurants and the endeavors. And that's what I mean. He really walks the walk. You know, he wasn't trying to be in the front of it. But he certainly wanted to back it and support it. Well, thank you. And, and maybe we get him back, you know, in, in the future and hear some more from Danny. So anyway, thank you for joining me in that conversation. It was great having you as a part of it. And uh, again, thank you for arranging uh, the Corner Table Talk session with Danny Glover. My pleasure. 
Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.